Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Chris Escobar, the executive director of the Atlanta Film Festival, has been the owner of the Plaza Theater since 2017. He recently signed a new 25-year lease with plans for major renovations. Later in the program, Chris Escobar tells us about revitalizing the plaza while maintaining the historic integrity of the building and encountering some friendly ghosts in the process. First, when legendary jazz vocalist Billie Holiday sang the first notes of Strange Fruit, Waiters stopped serving, and silence would immediately fall across audiences. After finishing the song, Billie Holiday would leave the stage with nothing further, and the crowds would erupt in applause. She sang the song unapologetically for 20 years until her untimely death at age 44. Atlanta favorite and Broadway star Terry Burrell is taking on the role of Billie Holiday in theatrical outfits, encore production of Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill. She joins me now via Zoom with Director Eric J. Little, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Good to be back. Thank you. Always great to have you. Let's start with Billie Holiday's song, Strange Fruit. Will you talk about the lyrics and the inspiration behind it? I think it's so interesting, Lois, what you said, and when she starts this song, I love the specificity of Southern trees. You know, it's very specific on what type, you know, it's because of what was happening during, you know, at history during that time. And then thinking about today, what's happening when it comes to Black people and the police or Black people, you know, back then being lynched. And for me, I think that was what was so powerful about the song because it was 
truth, it was bold, and it was in your face, and it was something you couldn't deny. And then just her powerful voice and the way she sung it, it's, it's very haunting and beautiful at the same time. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves, and blood at the root, black bodies And that makes it all the more chilling, because she's talking about human beings and not fruit hanging from those trees. Yeah. And this is also a woman who traveled through the South to perform mm -hmm. and was often treated very poorly. I mean, she, always, she had to come through the back door. She had to eat in the kitchen. And she was the star of the show. Yeah. You know? When I stand on the stage and I sing that song, every night I'm reminded of the stories that my uncle who grew up in the South and who's still alive today in his 90s uh, shared with me just a few years ago. And to hear that come out of his mouth made it very real for me. What were, can you tell us some of those stories, Terry? My, my uncle told me, it's one particular story, that when he was a little boy, his father took him into the woods to a place called the Hammer. And on the trees were still burn marks from where the clan would take black men there for some kind of infraction, I don't know what. They would literally beat them uh. and they would pour hot tar on their skin and then dump feathers on it. Now. Uh. I'm listening to him tell me this very factually. And he said the most chilling part again was him looking, looking up and seeing his father pointing out the burn marks that were still there. Wow. It's staggering. Yeah. It's just, it's just <laughs> unbelievable. And here she distills that horror in this beautiful song. You know, obviously performing it was very painful for her. It's chilling to, it's painful to listen to it, knowing the meaning. How was it received initially by nightclub owners and people who would book her for shows? The people who booked her, the club owners, you know, they gave the audiences what they wanted. It became a problem when the FBI became involved and wanted her to stop singing that song. And then they made it really difficult for her to be able to perform it. And sometimes she performed it out of defiance, but it made life very difficult for her. You know, they, they haunted her. They found every excuse in the book to try to catch her using drugs. They never did. They never even found drugs on her, but just the smell of it. And then she was, she was, and this is the thing that I learned in doing the research recently, Eric and I both learned this, that she was betrayed by people who were very close to her, like her agent, for instance. Really? I mean, it's yep. so shocking. Yeah. Oh. 
Such a tragic. I mean, he did it. He, he actually his intent was holistic. I mean, he he felt that if she was arrested, that she wouldn't have access to drugs, and he wanted her to get better. But the cost to her to her mind was uh, devastating. You know, a year and a day in in prison, and she she was arrested all over the country but especially in Philadelphia, and that she opens at Emerson's in Philly on this particular night is extremely significant. Because as she says, Philly is the only place that ever made me a candidate for federal housing. And they sent her to prison cold turkey. And they would tie your wrists to the bed, your wrists and your ankles. And you could just imagine the agony of withdrawal from a drug like heroin. Yeah, and because, like you're saying, Terry, they sent her cold turkey, so it wasn't like it was she was going to a rehab center. No, it wasn't. It wasn't like they were treating, you know, treating her and helping her. You know, she was in prison, and because I think, you know, as Terry was saying too, they lied to her. They said, like, you know, oh, we're, you know, go ahead and plead guilty you know, everything will work out fine and you'll be fine. You won't, you know, you might just get probation or something. But no, she was, you know, sentenced to prison. Like uh, Terry said, a year and a day. And the one time, because Eric and I have been reading her autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues, the one time that she did attempt rehab, which was very expensive then, it was like $2,000. And it was supposed to be very private, privileged information. And the day that she got out of rehab, there was an FBI agent standing across the street, and she knew then that somebody in that hospital had betrayed her confidence. Oh. And it just sent her into another turmoil, another, another spin, and she, she started using again. She, she really felt at that point that the whole world was against her, and she says that in the book. It sounds like she had reason to feel that way. Terry, you performed this role of Billie Holiday at Theatrical Outfit in 2018. Eric, you also directed that show. Will this production differ in any way? I think, you know, when you come back to a show, it's, and it was so interesting throughout rehearsal. There would be times in the life where we would remember certain things that we did and then certain things it was like, you know, oh, yeah, that was good. Or certain things you're like, no, nah, we want to do it differently this time. So I think as you stated in the intro, uh, Lois, it's an encore production, but it's there are going to be things that are different. Like, number one, the set is going to be a little bit different, but we still have the great same set designers for those people who know Atlanta theater. Uh, we have the great Mariah and Isabel Curly Clay who are back to design that. Uh, we also have the same lighting designer, Rob Dillard, who's coming back. Uh, the same costume designer, Jeff Cole. So a lot of the elements are the same. Then, of course, as you, we have the amazing, awesome, incredible, too many adjectives to name, Terry, Terry <laughs> Burrell playing. <laughs> Terry Burrell is playing. Billie Holiday. And then we have the same band, uh, Ramon Puzo on bass. We have Lorenzo Sanford on percussion. The difference now is we do have a new musical director and pianist, Mr. Tyrone Jackson. 
So that has actually been great because it's when you bring in a new person as a musical director and he's also playing the role of Jimmy in the show, it brings a new element that's good. It's different. So it's bringing some different energy in because he doesn't have the experience from the last production. He's only coming in with this show's experience. So there were times when he would bring something in that we may not have thought of. And also, of course, you know, it's, all, it's one of those things. It's four years later, and we know what, a, what has happened in the world yes. in the last two years. But even thinking about four years, it's like when you come back to a production, you're also doing it in this new world. So it's going to differ because we're coming in with different energy. You know, what, what's going on with the world. So it'll definitely be different. Well, and I was eager to get your thoughts on that because, sadly, not that racial injustice is anything recent or new, but this has been a very eventful few years. And I wonder what it's like for you, Terry, saying these lines, singing these songs, Eric, directing a play about the life of this brilliant performer who suffered so much injustice herself and lived in a world that was plagued everywhere by racial injustice. Is there a different feel now for Lady Day in 2022 for you? Well, I think because it's four years later and so much has happened, that we were able to dig a little deeper into her. And I was able to sink into her, what I imagined her consciousness was. And, you know, I think this time, oddly enough, to find those moments, those parts of her that were humorous, you know, to find those moments when she, life was celebratory for her, especially when she was singing. As Eric directed me, he said, find the songs when you're singing those songs, how do you feel about them? You know, find the songs that you really enjoy singing. She loved singing about her pain. She always sang very sad songs, but, you know, when she was singing things like Moonlight, she may not have been talking about the actual Moonlight. She might have been talking about something else, but it's to find those moments when she was joyful, when she's playful with the with the audience. And I think this time there's a little bit more emphasis on that. You know, I have to say that I am very aware today, especially I'm standing on stage, that some of the words I use, what people would consider politically incorrect. But you know what? That was her life. That's the way she expressed herself, especially if you read her autobiography. And I've decided that I'm going to be just as unapologetic about it as she was. You know, she was very much in control of her expressions in life. And that's how I honor her. I don't want to change her words or her personality. That's the way it was. Mm. How did she acquire the nickname Lady Day? <laughs> uh, it was, uh, she was very close to Lester Young, who was a uh, tenor sax player. And she called him Prez. Because as she says, because to me, he's president of the saxophone players. You know, that was a time when we had a whole discussion about it in rehearsal one day when they named 
they all named each other. He named her Lady Day. She named mm -hmm. him Prez. He called her mother the Duchess. And some of the other ones, Eric, that we talked about. Well, we also just talked about, in general, like if you think about, you know, Black community, but also thinking about the Black artists, the Black artistic community, there was something about those names that uplifted. You know, like you say, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Mm -hmm. You know, when you hear the word the Miracles, the Tempting Temptations, you know, they were called the Temptations. But a lot of people Count said, Basie. Count Basie. <laughs> I was just thinking uh, of Count Basie. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, you know, her name was Billie Holiday, but everybody, Lady Day, it's something that was very uplifting about that because names are powerful. You know, I think when people, when we are being named, you know, our parents, I think, you know, take the time to wonder, like, what do I want to name, you know, my child? And I think it's the same thing of even in uh, nicknames. And that's why some people, if they don't like their nicknames, it's because if they didn't give it to them and then like, say, for instance, if, a, if, if family has given you a nickname that you don't like and they continue to call you that, it's, it affects you. But if they give you a nickname or you give yourself a name or an, an honor, it's something that uplifts your spirit. And I think when I hear Lady Day, it's just, for me, it's both. It's powerful and gentle at the same time. And I think that to me is what Billie Holiday was and is, you know, how she lives on through her music and through her words. Um, she's powerful, but yet gentle as well. Yeah. Her original name was Eleonora Fagan. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not exactly a member yeah. of the royal court of St. James or whatever they no, what, whatever they do over in Great to, Britain. Uh, not use that thing. Terry, you will perform about a dozen of Billie Holiday's songs. Would you tell us about? Just a couple favorites or any interesting backstories you might have. Well, you know, the most famous one, some of the most famous, of course, uh, Strange Fruit, God Bless the Child, mm. which she wrote when her mother refused to help her at a time when she really needed some help. Them that's got shall get, them that's not shall lose. So the Bible said, and it still is news, Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own. And it always angered her mother because she knew that Billy wrote it for her. And of course, what a little moonlight can do, you know, just the beat of it alone. Oh, the opening number, all I know is I'm in love with you. Oh, what little moonlight can do. Oh, what little moonlight can do to you. I wonder where our love has gone. 
it's just it's just lovely you know and it's kind of a i don't know it's kind of a a love sonnet even to the audience because at the time that you meet her at the at the top of the show you know it's five months before she died when uh, life was not the best for her so those songs so oh give me a pigfoot love that one <laughs> because she you know she always wanted to emulate the horn playing of louis armstrong and the bessie smith sound the big sound but her voice wasn't like that so between the two of them, she sort of developed Billy Holiday. Up in a Harlem every Saturday night Where the high brows get together It's just too right They all congregate and all night hop And what they do is oop up a dot Old Hannah Brown from way across town gets full of corn and starts bringing them down. Yeah, because she had that smile in her sound like Louis mm-hmm. Armstrong. Yes, yes, she loved it. So things like that, highlighting some, a song that uh, Bessie Smith did, as she explains in the show, you know, Bessie did all these songs that nobody ever heard of because colored performers, uh, recording artists at that time, could not record anything that the big... Uh, recording companies thought were going to be hits. As she said, she said they were all safe for the grays, white folks, in case you're wondering. Actor Terry Burrell and director Eric J. Little of Theatrical Outfits production, Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill. We'll return with more of this conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta... This is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. Great to have you along. If you're just tuning in, my guests are actor Terry Burrell and director Eric J. Little. We've been discussing theatrical outfits production of Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill. The show takes place in a 1950s Philadelphia jazz bar where the legendary Billie Holiday is giving one of her final performances. Burrell portrays the iconic singer in the play, and here she talks about her interaction with the audience. I'm talking right to them. And there are a couple of times when I come right off the stage and I'm in their face. You know, if people are reactive, like last night, they were really into it. So I could 
look at certain individuals and talk straight to them, you know, or acknowledge they might have said something or, you know, reacted physically in some way, and I'll acknowledge it. But it's, it's, it's limited interaction. Last time we did it, we actually had tables on the floor where people actually sat. So I could have much more personal interaction. But with the situation we're having here called COVID. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Forgot about that for 20 seconds. <laughs> and, and that's really more for my protection. Yeah. You know, and for theirs, ultimately. I mean, the audience is required to wear masks. Yep. So we're not... You know, look, when you sing and when you speak, uh, there's, you know, you, you're going to spew a little bit. So we test every week to make sure that we are not infected. Yeah. Yeah. Lois, I didn't even think about that. Thank you, Terry. When you talked about what was different from last time, that is one thing that I definitely miss because of COVID, that we couldn't have the audience as close, you know, on the stage like we did last time. But it was also the first thing when we, you know, started talking about doing it again. That was the first thing I said in the production meeting. Okay, well, first of all, we can't have tables on the set. <laughs> and, you know, everybody agreed, of course. It was like, yeah, we can't do that. But as Terry said, it's still, you know, she has limited interactions and she's talking directly to the crowd. So it's still a good time. Sure. Terry, you gave a memorable performance, a wonderful performance a few years back of Ethel Waters. Did you think of Ethel at all when you came to inhabit Billy? I did give some thought to it. I mean, both of these women are very were very unapologetic in the way they lived their lives. They both suffered racism. They both suffered in their personal lives. I mean, Billy was very close to her mother. Her mother hurt her very deeply when she asked her for her help and she didn't. Ethel was hurt very deeply by her mother. Ethel was the result of a rape. Her mother was very young. Both those mothers were like 13 or something when they gave birth to them. You know, Ethel was a little bit older than Billy, but they both found a way to turn those negatives in their lives into something very positive for them. I think Ethel was maybe a little bit more successful at that than Billy, but very strong women. And they actually did meet briefly and it was not a good meeting. No? <laughs> no, Billy was uh, at some club or something that Ethel performed at and she was auditioning and she inadvertently sang a song that was in Ethel's show and Ethel happened to walk in and said get that <clears throat> off stage oh no <laughs> <laughs> you know they didn't care they said what they wanted to say <laughs> well I was just thinking about you and how beautifully you the word inhabit comes to mind because it seems like you are living these lives of the women as you portray them. You have to. My husband asked me once, well, what is it that you want? And I said, I want Terry to disappear. I don't want anybody, especially if they know me, to look up on that stage and say, that's Terry. I want to be Ethel. I want to be Billy. At least occupy the essence of who these women were when I'm on that stage. And I have to say that Eric 
really honored that because I said that to him. And I said, I need you to help me. You know, after all the, I mean, we did a lot of talking about her and reviewing her life and her experiences and breaking it down and blah, blah, blah. But at the end, after you do all of that, then you have to infuse those experiences and how you view them into your own consciousness, into your own sense of physicality. One thing I noticed about her, for instance, she never stood up straight. Really? Never. No. If you if you watch her perform, her shoulders were always a little bit rounded. It's a subtle thing uh, physically, but it's not so subtle consciously or subconsciously. Those shoulders were always a little bit rounded, like I'm bearing the weight of the world is on my shoulders. It's just a just a little thing that I noticed. Well, it's not so little. Yeah. So I'm conscious of that because my own personal physical bearing is to stand very straight. So I always just, it's always just rounded just a little bit. You know, the, the stomach is just concave just a little bit. Everything about that's just a little bit down. She didn't have a, a huge laugh either. You know, it was more like a kind of giggle. <laughs> you know? Really? Mm-hmm. You never heard her laughing out loud. Well, that doesn't sound like she had a whole lot to laugh out loud about in her mm-hmm. life. She would laugh. It just wasn't a gut bucket laugh. Not like an Ethel who would have just really laughed out loud at things. Her expression of humor was, uh, it was there, but it was always a little bit more subdued. Mm -hmm. Tragically, we know she succumbed to her addiction. She died from alcohol and drug-related complications in 1959. Billie Holiday has had a lot of attention in media, movies. How did her influence this brilliant young woman, how did her influence and determination to sing the truth end up shaking a nation to its core and still does? I think by her gift and authenticity and by her courage. You know, when you look at all of our people that we call legends or icons, I think the the main attribute that they all share is courage. And I think courage and sacrifice, that they were they had the courage to sacrifice certain things because they they knew what was right and they were not afraid to be them authentic self. So, I mean, you you know, I think of people like Billie Holiday, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, those people, when you say the FBI was against them or, you know, they were after them a lot. I had already, so this was something I learned even more this time than even when we did it last time, just going deeper. You know, I knew, of course, the FBI, you know, checked into Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. That was, you know, really widely known. But I didn't know how much with Billie Holiday. A singer. And the fact, many songs were great. But it was mainly, of course, because of Strange Fruit. You know, that was the main thing. And for me, that, you know, like I said, 
her legend is beyond strange fruit, but I think that one song, you know, Lois, as you were saying, what shook a nation is because it was so truthful, it was so authentic, and it was so powerful, and she was not afraid to get in trouble to sing it. You know, even when she knew the dangers of singing it, she was like, she still sunk it, you know, and all the pain it caused her to sing it. She didn't care, but she still sung it. You know, here's the tragedy. Because she spent that year and a day in Alderson prison, she lost her cabaret card. You have to have that cabaret card to, in order to sing in the clubs. And they took it away from her. And friends of hers set it up for her to sing in Carnegie Hall. And she had a successful, I think it was two or three nights that she performed there, but she could not perform in clubs all around the country. As she says, you know, they can make you, they can take away your ability to earn your daily bread. That's how she earned her daily bread. And they took that away from her. That was very serious and very devastating and very painful. And there were times when she would sing it. Singing at Emerson's was uh, an act of defiance because he could have lost his license. They could have closed his club down for letting her sing there. And of all places to sing in Philadelphia where they had sent her to prison in West Virginia. Actor Terry Burrell and director Eric J. Little. Theatrical Outfits Encore Production, Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill is on stage through June 26th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, Chris Escobar owner of the Plaza Movie Theater, shares details on the historic theater's upcoming renovations. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Christopher Escobar has been owner of the Plaza Theater since 2017. Back in March, he signed a new 25-year lease with plans for major renovations. Chris Escobar joins me now via Zoom to talk about renovation plans for the theater. Chris, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me again. So please tell us about the improvements you've made since purchasing the plaza five years ago. Since I purchased the plaza in 2017, the work we've done has been comparatively modest. Uh, we've done a new, new little stage area in front of the screen for either use and performance and so it's better for the Rocky Horror cast. We've added a theater organ. We've cleaned some things up. We've organized some things. We've added a little touch and style there. But really all of that is is very much a, a drop in the bucket towards what we have planned ahead. And very much this this time in between has been in ramping up for this moment. And so what we've got planned ahead in, in summary is what is 
probably the most significant investment in the plaza's history since it was built. And, and so we're talking about ultimately a $4 million restoration and renovation and revitalization. So we're gonna be making the plaza work better. We're gonna make it more usable, more sustainable, both from a, its economic ability to generate revenue with our square footage, but also sustainability from a, you know, decreasing the kind of energy we use you know, improving our water usage, you know, so from an environmental standpoint as well. And then even sustainable from a kind of a business model as well, where one of the kind of most significant changes will be adding a rooftop patio bar and screen and the ability to have a permanent outdoor space that will be available to us kind of no matter the conditions, right? No matter what's happening. Otherwise, obviously it's no, it's no secret that movie theaters were especially hit along with uh, live theaters and, and museums during COVID. And, and so the places that had a permanent outdoor space were able to adapt more easily. And we were lucky enough to get some permission temporarily to do some drive-ins, but that's not something that's long-term going to be available to us. And so, um, you know, so that's just sustainable in that regard as well. Right. So, but all said and done, we're going to be doing a number of things that will either be restoring historic elements that, that the plaza has been missing for 10, 20, in some cases, 50 years. We're going to be improving how the plaza operates from an efficiency standpoint and, and also giving more flexibility so that we can do more at the same time and offer more things to people, including things that make groups using the plaza more accessible and affordable. And then also things that allow the plaza to be able to try and experiment with more things and partner with more community groups and then offer a greater variety of programming. So I'm really excited because this is to me really the way that of all the times that the plaza's existence as the last historic cinema, particularly from when it was around, in, you know, when it was built in 39, there were over a hundred movie theaters in Metro Atlanta. And, and from its time, it is the only one that is still operating as a cinema today. And so, you know, doing these things will ultimately protect the plaza's wow. future once and for all. You mentioned the pandemic. You did a phenomenal job pivoting from indoor screenings to drive-in theater. And that reinforced the idea that the Plaza is not only a cinema showcase, but a gathering spot, a community center. When you talk about needing to consider alternatives, are drive-in something that you want to continue offering? Well, I think the drive-ins, that was something that I had wanted to do as a, as a special one night or two night thing, even before the pandemic. And then it became from a, a novelty or a luxury to a necessity. I think doing that on select occasions in the future, I think would be fun and would be great, but it's not realistic for that to be kind of part of, at least here on site, as part of our kind of regular ongoing model. But borrowing from some of the things we were able to do during the drive-in is, so for instance, so having a, a rooftop, you know, outdoor screen so that we can do, you know, not from your car, but, you know, in the comfort of, of chairs, be able to have that. That's an important element. We were able to also work with some of our neighbors from the Righteous Room to Southern Bell and otherwise to not only allow for the breaking of the number two rule, which number one, 
in movie theaters is obviously no talking, but number two is no outside food or drink. Well, so not only did we allow for that rule to be broken, we actually enabled for that rule to be broken and partnered with some of our neighbors to allow for people to be able to buy food from them from the comfort of the Plaza Theater and be able to not just get dinner and then a movie or for us to make some subpar food options available, but to actually take some of these great options of these amazing restaurateurs within the immediate vicinity of the plaza and make it immediately available to our own customers. And so it's not our customers or their customers. We, it is a, kind of a, a, an experience all in the same uh, moment. It's a community you've got there. Yeah, it absolutely is. And so we're excited. We're going to be able to be doing that even more as some of these our friends that have been running Adarm now, Open Fishmonger here on site as well. We're going to be doing some collaborations with them. So not only is the, will the plaza be continue to be the best place to watch a movie in Atlanta, but we will have the best food available because we're going to not trying to you know, do what we can't do, which is make good food. All these other restaurants around here make good food. We're going to facilitate and make it possible for you to eat these incredible meals from these incredible chefs while watching a movie at the Plaza Theater. So that's kind of another little example of some different things that came out of COVID uh, and lessons and collaborations and things we're able to do that is going to stick around. Very cool. The Plaza Theater Foundation launched a GoFundMe seeking $50,000 in donations. What will those funds enable you to finance? Yeah, that's a great question. So for one, part of the plans we're doing, which in quick summary is conversion of our balcony into small auditoriums, is uh, recreating exterior elements that have been missing for half a century, like an exterior box office and the bulb lighting underneath the marquee and things like that. Redoing our concession stand and bar and our bathrooms to be more period appropriate and to be more of that sense of occasion. And then adding dressing rooms backstage. And then I mentioned the, the rooftop patio bar and screen, but in another important element of that is adding an elevator for the first time. The plaza in its over 80 years has never had handicap accessibility or any, you know, just improved accessibility to the second floor or upper floors or anything like that. And so the combination of the money that we're raising from corporate sources and grants from the properties contributing, and then the vast majority of it, we're going to be funding with the earned revenue we make. You know, a lot of those things are, are easier to point to for projects that make a direct impact on revenue and things that, you know, you know, this makes sense. Some of these projects are really more for the historic preservation or restoration elements or from improving accessibility, where as a historic theater, we aren't required to add accessibility. But if we're trying to serve 100% of the community, there are certain things that there's not a business case. It's not, we're not going to make our money back from this thing, but we still want to do it. And so, you know, being able to have funds that come from the Plaza Theater Foundation, that come from some of these other sources where it doesn't have to be justified in that this money will be made back in this way, but instead this money will allow us to do things that are for the charitable benefit of the community being able to enjoy the Plaza Theater and for the Plaza Theater to be able to be kind of restored and adding some of these historic elements. You know, so, that, so that's some of the things that ultimately those funds will help underwrite things that that improve the accessibility improve the the usability you know and add more of the historic preservation and then a big part of what we're doing is also going to be honoring the story of the plaza theater which is an important amount we've actually talked about you know on this show some of the 
the people who, particularly the the last three owners, the the previous owners, the individuals that took major risk uh, and are really the reason why the plaza clearly beat the odds of all its contemporaries and is still around today as a cinema is because of people starting with George LaFont and then with Johnny and Gail Ray and then with Michael Furlinger took tremendous personal risk. And these are local people who, who took risk and believed in the possibility that the plaza had to offer. And so, you know, part of, of underlining the story of the plaza is also highlighting the story of the people that have made that possible, which is part of why we're not naming our auditory, our new three auditoriums, auditoriums one, two, and three. These are going to be instead the LaFont, the Ray, and the Mike after the three previous owners to honor them. We're also going to be doing a museum style timeline of the theater's history and honoring significant moments and events and, and things like that. And then honoring people that have been a part of the plaza's History. For instance, RuPaul worked at the Plaza Theater in the 80s as an employee while wow. he was developing his drag act. So there have been either regulars or, or staff that have been an important, maybe not to the you know fame of RuPaul, but have been an important part of why the Plaza is still around and why the Plaza is what it is. So we want to honor all that. And so you know that's some of the things that the funds from the foundation will help make possible. And then from uh, you know honestly from a big picture, being able to show to not only funders, but to uh, financiers that look, we have support from the community. They're, they're not only contributing, but they're very excited about what we're gonna do as an indication of the success of what it is we're doing. And that all the projections I'm making that, hey, when we do this, this is the kind of revenue we'll generate. We will be able to you know, support the growingly expensive rent it is to be able to keep this theater here and operating. All, all that contributes to creating a, that confidence uh, and that you know, what we think is gonna happen is reinforced and, and validated. Mm. It says so much about you, Chris, oh. that you're honoring your predecessors. I mean, you you swooped in, scooped this up, and figured out how to make it live on for the community. Well, that's very kind of you, but I would I would be borderline lying if I if I let that just stand because the truth is is what I realized is. The only reason I was able to, first of all, buy the theater was because I was allowed to be involved with the theater during the Johnny and Gail Ray years. And the only reason why I was in the position of of working closely with the theater and developing a relationship with Mike Furlinger and that he was ultimately willing to work with me in a way to make that possible what, you know, was because of his own willingness to kind of take a chance on me. And none of that would have mattered if George LaFont hadn't saw the potential in what was an adult cinema showing X-rated films <laughs> and that it could it could one day be a source of culture for Atlanta and be a place where people could watch foreign films and local films and independent films and classic films. You know, none of that would have, you know, mattered or, or been true had he not had that vision. And then ultimately, none of these ideas and none of these things we've been able to do would be possible if it wasn't for the incredible contributions of the staff here. You know, part of why we were able to do what we did during COVID was because I didn't lay off any of the staff like every single other movie theater did. It wasn't that we had so much money that it was like, oh, we'll be fine. You know, it was, it was you know, hey, we're not sure what's going to happen, but if you guys are willing to work, we'll keep working. And, and they were. And so, you know, it's only because I've been lucky enough to have all these amazing people 
either take a chance on me or give me a shot or share their wisdom with me and also help me filter my dumb ideas from the good, <laughs> from the good ones they've they've you know made me look good but truth you know it it would be a complete fantasy and a lie to say that i even remotely got here by myself i think that speaks volumes itself I read there are ghosts living in the Plaza Theater, friendly ones, I hope. Yes. Can you tell us about any supernatural run-ins you've had at the theater? Yeah, so there's been a lot of reports of ghosts and ghost activity and paranormal activity, namely from people who spend a lot of time at the Plaza, either staff or Rocky Horror cast. So I was able to take it from beyond just reports and get a set of paranormal investigators to actually come on a couple occasions to the club. Oh, like Ghostbusters? Not Ghostbusters, but more, you know, you could say ghost hunters or you know, they aren't trying to ah. capture them or anything, but, <laughs> but really these are, these are people who use a variety of techniques to really actually first and foremost try and see if they can disprove or create enough reasonable non-paranormal explanation to uh, some of the things that happen. And it was a, a pretty life-changing experience for me personally, honestly. I was too chicken to go with them the first time. But after I heard what they were able to capture, I went with them the second time. And it was incredible. I mean, the what I'll, I'll just say personalities that we interacted with in a number of ways was fascinating. And what, you know, what we were able to learn in summary was that all the personalities, spirits, presences, whatever you, know, you want to call it, None of them seemed to have died there. None of them needed anything. They all just wanted to be there, which was, which was flattering, right? It was amazing. But there was, I've never experienced anything that in the course of a single evening, I went from having a healthy skepticism of maybe it's true, maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't, to having completely 180 and going, wow, this is undeniably true. And there's still a lot more of it I don't understand. But there, there was no denying some of the things, some of the encounters and interactions we had via voice, via, you know, there were some other indications that they were able to make through some of the different systems and techniques they, they used and captured. So we're, we're still unpacking a lot of that and transcribing. And so hopefully we'll be able to make that more easily shareable. But it was, it was fascinating. And if anything, how normal it was, was the most bizarre thing to me, that it no longer became this paranormal thing but it became like, you know, having just really long distance phone calls with rather normal people. <laughs> and uh, do was... you continue that, Chris? Yeah. So I, you know, this, I know this is going to sound weird. Like I'm walking around with, you know, crystals and, you know, who knows what, but we haven't done the investigation since those two, but, but I, I do what a lot of people who have been part of the plaza for much longer than myself do, which is, you know, just not be rude and recognize the presences that are there and, and, and talk to them, greet them. Yeah, I do that. And I've had some, some rather emotional moments personally, honestly, you know, when, um, when we're in this kind of throes of trying to figure out how to make all this stuff work and, and figure out and just, I come to realize that if you're in the afterlife and you're at a place like the plaza, the only reason you're there is because it meant something to you at some point in your, you know, earthly life. And I come to realize that really, if you're still here on earth or you're in some other, you know, plane of existence, you know, anything around us that means anything 
only means anything because it meant something to someone. And, and realizing that that's true with people who are still with us or, or otherwise, you know, is why the attention to detail that we're going to be taking matters and why the level of care we're going to be taking matters because of all the incredible memories that people make here and share here and, and, and will make here. And, and what emotionally, it's more than just the movies, you know, what emotionally these places mean and to be able to revisit them and to be able to share them across generations. I mean, you can't just buy or make that. That's part of why historic spaces are so special and important. That can't just be created. That, that significance is only there because of decades of humans treasuring these places. And the plaza, in terms of movie theaters, is the last one. We're, we're obviously lucky enough to have you know, the Fox Theater and the Rialto, but obviously they, they are working and, and operating and functioning in, in some different ways and capacities. So the plaza is unique in that you know, if you came here in the 40s or the 50s or the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or what have you, you know, it is largely a lot of the same function, even if maybe the seats are getting a little bigger. Chris Escobar, owner of the historic Plaza Theater on Ponce de Leon Avenue. More information about the theater's upcoming renovations is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.